Okay, welcome everyone to this afternoon's session. Uh, let me introduce our speakers. We have uh, in the red, no, sorry. Um, <laughs> we have, I'm, last, last joke, okay. Um, we've got David Gibson, um, who is American, African, and Irish, I think, and um, is uh, uh, <laughs> um, going to speak for the Peter Baptist side and speak about how Peter Baptists understand Abraham. He is one of the pastors at Trinity Church in Aberdeen, which is part of the IPC, the International Presbyterian Church. Um, he did a PhD was it on Romans and Bart and that kind of thing, and Romans 9 and Calvin and Bart on election and quite a bit of stuff on Romans um, at King's London. And our other speaker is Martin Salter, who is uh, assistant uh, or associate, that's correct, isn't it? Associate pastor at Grace Community Church in Bedford. And uh, was a student at Oak Hill and has written on this subject before. In fact, Martin is sort of responsible, really, aren't you, for, for, for being here. And that, that he, he published uh, on the question of uh, circumcision and baptism, um, and uh, David has replied. This is all in Thamelios, and we might actually, um, when we put the audio online, we might also put up some links to your exchanges there. So there's, there's a bit of history here. Um, uh, that's, the, the discussion is there. I don't think it's going to presume any of that. Uh, let me tell you the plan. The plan is that they will each uh, speak. Uh, we'll aim to keep that within 40 minutes each. Um, they will then have a bit of time to respond to each other. Um, and if there is still time, uh, then we will open it up to questions from the floor for a little bit. Uh, there will, of course, be no voting at the end. <laughs> Thanks very much, Gary. Colin Brooks wrote that the difference between David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill in a debate was that while Lloyd George had the gift of getting on the right side of a man, Churchill had the gift of getting on the right side of the question. When it comes to Christian brothers in debate, I think we're charged with emulating both British Prime Ministers. There's a need to be on the right side of our brethren and to be on the right side of the question. The former is surely not difficult, but the latter is arguably extremely difficult. Debating baptism, its mode, its subjects, and its meaning, you will know, is notorious ground for speaking past each other precisely because the folly of standing on any other ground can seem so self-evident to both sides. Furthermore, changing one's mind on the issue, I would say, is connected to so many more issues than merely theology. I would submit that livelihoods, stipends, family relations, ministries, and even professional careers are all weighty factors in how one reaches decisions. Upton Sinclair said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> in light of this, many suggest that the waters of baptism are best not muddied any further. Now, as Gary said, Martin and I have already uh, ignored such suggestions. We've thrown ourselves into each other's shallow and deep waters, respectively, in the attempt to convince each other that the position we hold is mistaken. Now, today, we're going to try and convince others of the respective positions we hold. Perhaps this is very naive, but we're going to try boldly. 
Churchill said, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> so I'm going to try and present a positive argument for Abraham in Peter Baptist theology. Um, and how I'm going to do that is by suggesting that the question that we need to be on the right side of is this. Who is a child of Abraham? We could inflect the question slightly. How does one become a child of Abraham? Now, maybe you will feel this is the wrong question and it's going to skew the whole presentation. Certainly some of you will think it's the right question. It's just that I'm on the wrong side of the right answer. I'm open to suggestions about how to refine the question that is central to this debate. But I ask that question precisely because I think it's this question which Paul is engaging and answering in the polemical sections of Romans and Galatians. And I take it that any kind of perspective on Abraham and Peter baptism can only emerge on the other side of trying to answer that question. First of all, you get to baptism through answering the question of who is a child of Abraham. It has to be in that order. So I have two points. And I am going to attempt a positive case for the sake of making this interesting. I'm going to frame my points polemically against the credo-baptist position. So I'm going to argue that the reformed Baptist approach to the Abrahamic covenant has, first of all, an inadequate Christology. And secondly, it has an unbiblical anthropology. I actually have a third point, which is that those first two mistakes lead to a reductionist theology of baptism, but we don't have time for that. So two two points. And I hope these points widen the lens a little bit and add a little bit of spice uh, to your afternoon. Credo-Baptists have an inadequate view of Jesus and an inadequate doctrine of creation. So number one, first point, what I've called the Christology of baptism, its covenant structure. Let me cut straight to the chase. The Credo-Baptist argument is that Christ as the seed of Abraham is a fulfillment motif which renders invalid the genealogical principle on which the practice of Peter baptism rests so heavily. The genealogical principle is what Gary read to us in Genesis 17, verse 7, and throughout that whole chapter. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. What God establishes with Abraham as head of his family and household, God also establishes with his family and household. And that principle within the covenant of grace continues across both old and new administrations. But, here's the credo-baptist objection, and this is Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam in their big book, Kingdom Through Covenant. And I quote, the covenantal argument for infant baptism fails to see that the genealogical principle is transformed across the covenants. It does not remain unchanged. Under the previous covenants, the relationship between the covenant mediator and his seed was primarily physical, biological, for example, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel and David. But now in Christ, under his mediation, the relationship between Christ and his seed is no longer physical but spiritual. It is brought about by the work of the Spirit, which entails that the covenant sign must be applied only to those who in fact profess that they are the spiritual seed of Abraham. 
with highlighting, such highlighting of the spiritual seed of Abraham like that, one could easily get the impression that this aspect of biblical theology, a spiritual seed, is unknown to classic Reformed theology. In fact, it is not a challenge to pedobaptism at all, precisely because, I'm going to argue, the Reformed understanding of how the covenant is fulfilled in Christ is far richer and more nuanced than many standard Baptist presentations. So, let me try and show this. When you look at Galatians and Romans, although the contexts are not identical, and although there are important differences and nuances in argument, Abraham is a major player in the argument of both of those letters. In Romans, the argument from Abraham is connected to how the circumcised and uncircumcised are justified. In Galatians, the particular context is table fellowship with Gentiles. And the argument from Abraham in Galatians is introduced with the issue of whether the reception of the Spirit is based on observing the law or based on faith in Christ. In both cases, Galatians and Romans, Paul is expounding Genesis 15, verse 6, against his interlocutors. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The matter of sequence is absolutely crucial. Abraham believed God and was counted righteous before he received the sign and seal of circumcision. This sequencing of faith first and everything else second is at the heart of Paul's argument as to why the nations, the Gentiles, can now be treated as righteous in God's sight without being circumcised by observing the law. For it was always so. In Galatians, however, and you might want to have uh, the book of Galatians open in chapter 3 here, in Galatians, however, the matter of sequence is tied to a bigger issue of chronology. It's not just important that faith came before circumcision, it's just as important that the promise came before the law. So I'm going to argue that Paul's understanding of biblical chronology is the key to Galatians 3. And it's what we need to see in examining verse 16, which is one of the central verses credo-baptists use in developing their fulfillment critique of the genealogical principle. Verse 16, chapter 3, 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. Now the strangeness here is not really Paul's singular understanding of the collective plural noun. There are good ways of understanding this. Rather, the strangeness here is why does Paul need to make this point at all? Why does he need to say the promises were spoken to Abraham and Christ? The answer is chronology. So, observe, if chronology is the linchpin of Paul's argument, which came first, promise or law, then notice that by so arguing, Paul has a problem. Yes, it's easy to prove that the Abrahamic covenant came before the Sinai covenant, the promise came before the law, but then didn't the law come before Christ? Paul is going to argue in verse 17 that the covenant came first, and the law, 430 years later, cannot annul what came first. But Paul's own argument could be turned against him by the Judaizers. It doesn't help you to argue that what came earlier is more foundational when the law comes 
earlier than Christ. That's why verse 16 is so important. Paul is saying that the promise, which came first, was in fact a promise given to Christ, not just to Abraham. So if you look at verse 17, F.F. Bruce says that the prefix pro in pro kekuramenen, verse 17, previously established, previously ratified, that prefix pro indicates that the covenant was validated at the time it was given, long before the law, and was complete in itself with all the confirmation it required from the authority of the God who made it. Paul is saying that covenant complete ratified, established, validated before the law arrived was a covenant with Christ. So if Christ is the seed of Abraham who received the promises as well as Abraham then there is a vital sense in which while Christ appeared after the law in some sense he nevertheless also preceded it. And I think this point is actually essential to Paul's argument Before Moses ever appeared on the scene, before Sinai, Paul is arguing that Abraham's covenant was also Christ's covenant. Now this means that I think we need to nuance the language we use when speaking here about Christ and the promises given to Abraham. Martin is going to use the word fulfilment on several occasions and that is right and proper. But doesn't staring at Galatians 3.16 lead us to say not just that Christ fulfills the promise to Abraham, but that the promise was made to him as well? For that is what the text actually says. Christ's relationship to the promise is twofold. He received it as well as fulfilled it. Now as far as I can tell, this perspective has been all but lost in modern biblical studies. But a text like Galatians 3.16 was fertile ground for the development in classical reformed theology for the belief that the covenant of grace was made with Christ in a way which structured the way in which it was also made with Abraham and his seed. This verse funded the belief that Christ is not just the fulfiller of the Abrahamic covenant, he is the foundation of it. So you have the larger catechism, question 31. With whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. This, I suggest, is not exegetically unwarranted. F.F. Bruce says of Paul's surprising point in chapter 316, in the first instance the reference is to a single descendant, Christ, through whom the promised blessing was to come to all the Gentiles. In the second instance, the reference is to all who receive the blessing. In verse 29, all who belong to Christ are thereby included in Abraham's offspring. End of quote. However, if you are uneasy with this language of the covenant of grace being made with Christ, consider this, Isaiah 42 verse 6, where the Lord addresses his servant, I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And more than this, note that in the great federal passages like Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does not argue from Adam and Abraham, but from Adam and Christ as the two great covenantal heads. Because Christ is the second Adam who restores what the first Adam had lost, he is the mediator of the covenant of grace and the head of a new humanity. 
Now, focusing on Adam and Christ is actually quite a startling bypassing of the whole story of Israel and the promises to Abraham, unless, of course, what God was doing redemptively in Abraham and the promises in somehow is part of what God was doing in Christ. This is what Reformed theology has argued. Listen to Bavink. Bavink argues that Noah, Abraham, Israel, and others were not the actual parties and heads in the covenant of grace. I tend to think myself that language is a little bit unfortunate, calling them not the actual parties and heads. I think they were real parties and heads, but this is what Bavink says. On the contrary, then and now, in the Old and New Testament, Christ was and is the head and the key party in the covenant of grace. And through his administration it came to the patriarchs and to Israel. He who had existed from eternity and had made himself the surety also immediately after the fall acted as prophet, priest and king as the second Adam as head and representative of fallen humankind. This understanding within Reformed theology itself became the soil in which grew up the idea of a covenant of redemption the Pactum Salutis, which helped to distinguish the covenant as it was made with Christ from eternity and the covenant as it is made with the elect in time. So, here is a view of Christ and the covenant of grace which says that the covenant, here are three key things, the covenant is founded on Christ, fulfilled in Christ, and bequeathed by Christ, given to others by Christ, founded, fulfilled, and bequeathed. This kind of understanding is very nicely expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8. You have chapter 7 on God's covenant with man, and then chapter 8 on Christ the Mediator. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and saviour of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified and glorified. Now, you've been very patient. So here's where I want to try and make pedo-baptist hay out of all of this. The credo-baptist critique of the genealogical principle works by focusing on Christ as the fulfilment of the covenant of grace. But it is undermined by not reflecting at all, as far as I can see, on the fact that Christ is the covenant of grace's foundation before he ever fulfills or bestows it. So Martin and others like uh, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham argue that the covenant of grace is a story with a destination that Peter Baptists have failed to arrive at. We kind of uh, get stuck in the Old Testament cul-de-sac. The covenant of grace is heading somewhere to a fulfilment in Christ. But I'm going to suggest that the covenant of grace is a story with a beginning that credo-baptists have failed to start. It is founded on Christ before it ever progresses to Christ. The credo-baptist traces a line from Abraham to Christ, but in reality the line to be traced is from Christ to Abraham to Christ. Abraham is Christ's seed before Christ is ever Abraham's seed. Abraham is Christ's seed before Christ is ever Abraham's seed. So here's the hay, two big implications. First, 
Notice what this does to Gentry Wellam's argument that under the previous covenants, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, the relationship between the covenant mediator and his seed, this is their words, was primarily physical and biological. That simply, I submit, cannot be true. If from all eternity the Father gave to his Son a people to be his seed, the primary relationship has to be spiritual, not physical. Although I do want to add here very quickly that I actually dislike the Gentry Wellam distinction between physical and spiritual, at least as they understand it, but that's, that's for another day. In other words, the primary relationship between God and his people is a decretal one primary in the sense of being logically and chronologically prior to any outworking of that relationship in space-time history. The seed are in Christ before they are in the world. Arguing for physical, biological in the old covenant and spiritual in the new is first and foremost the result of an inadequate Christology. Second point. It's this understanding of the covenant of grace, the one I'm arguing for, which provides a deep covenantal foundation to the way that Paul is arguing here in Galatians and Romans. What you will find in Martin's argument, the heart of Gentry and Wellam's critique of Peter baptism, is that in the new covenant, the primary relationship between God and his people is a spiritual one based on faith. All of the realities, this is a quote from Gentry Wellam, all of the realities of the new covenant age and the benefits that come to us are because of our faith union in Christ. Peter Baptists, of course, do not disagree with this. On the contrary, if the covenant of grace is made with Christ and his people who are his seed, then it follows that he does not, cannot ever save them in two different ways, either physically in the old covenant and spiritually in the new, or by the law or works of circumcision in the old covenant and by faith in the new covenant. Paul's whole point in Romans and Galatians is that there has only ever been one way of salvation, and it is by faith, neither by bloodline nor Torah obedience. So let me try and put this even more clearly. In Galatians, Paul cannot be arguing that because Christ is the fulfillment of the promise, the genealogical principle is therefore invalidated. And here's why he cannot be arguing that. For the very promise itself, being founded on Christ, founded on Christ, not Abraham, in itself and from the moment it was given, showed that genealogy itself was never a true guarantee of sonship. The genealogical principle could be as invalid at the time of Abraham as it is around a meal table in Antioch, as Peter says, thanks but no thanks to the ritually unclean. Remember how Paul, I haven't got my uh, Bible in front of me, in chapter 3, Paul says to Peter, we who are Jews by birth know it is not by observing the law that we're justified. Paul rebukes Peter because it was his very genealogy which should have taught him it was neither the law or food observance that makes him clean. He's not justified by being either a Jew or a law keeper or by being both together. The repeated rebuke of the prophets to Israel is that genealogy as a source of religious pride is an insult to God, but an insult to the God who had himself instituted the genealogical principle. 
from the very beginning of the covenant with Abraham onward, you could be a son of Abraham and a child of God. From the beginning, you could be a son of Abraham and a child of the devil. From the beginning, you could be a Jew and yet not be a Jew. Romans 2, 28-29. You could be a son of Abraham and yet not be a son. From the beginning, you could be circumcised and have Abraham as your father or not have him as your father, depending on whether you walked in his footsteps of faith or not. From the beginning, you could be uncircumcised and have Abraham as your father, depending on whether you had his faith or not. It's not that there is now a spiritual understanding of the genealogical principle. It was always there. Now this is an attempt to argue that if Paul is saying that the promise fulfilled in Christ introduces something fundamentally new into the Abrahamic covenant, then actually Paul's argument in Romans and Galatians falls apart. For his very logic depends on Paul in Romans and Galatians giving the Judaizers their own scriptures and showing them that what he is saying is not in fact new, but has always been the case. Rather, what is new now is that because the curse of the law has been removed in Christ, the gates to God's family are taken off their hinges and thrown wide open. In Christ, the genealogical principle is not abandoned, it is recalibrated to a truly international scale. One of Tom Wright's chapter headings in his book on Paul that we were uh, listening to and talking about this morning where he treats Romans 4 and Galatians the chapter heading is the people of God freshly reworked and I think the reformed with our stress on the one people of God can be comfortable should be comfortable with that sort of language for as a concept at least the idea of a fresh reworking of God's people is not in the idea of the introduction of something radically new into the covenant but rather in how the death of the Messiah under the curse of the law allows what was always there to be drawn out and now come to fruition. A single international family of Jew and Gentile in covenant relationship to the God who made the world. The gospel announced in advance to Abraham can now go to all the nations. The death and resurrection of the seed of Abraham sets free a world imprisoned by sin by lifting the curse pronounced against it. But this is a change in scale, not in soteriology. It's a change of administration, not a change of substance or structure. The mediator is one. The covenant is one. Salvation is one. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. For Jew, Gentile, Christian, it is and has always been so. Who is a child of Abraham? Abraham and Paul both return the same answer to our question. Old covenant and new covenant, the answer is the same. A child of Abraham is one who has the faith of Abraham in the God who gives righteousness to those who believe. A child of Abraham is one who has faith in Christ and belongs to Christ, Galatians 3.29. How do you become a child of Abraham? by coming to Christ and believing in him. You become a child by having faith. So, that's the first point. Number two. What I've called the anthropology of baptism, it's covenantal subjects. 
the anthropology of baptism, its covenantal subjects. And here I think is where it might spice it up just a little bit more. If the genealogical principle is not invalidated in the New Covenant, then it is one part of forming a biblical anthropology of fathers and children and covenant heads who act in representative ways towards their progeny. Here's what I want to suggest. In credo-baptist theology, a new and unbiblical category of a human person opens up. The autonomous individual who now relates to the God of the Bible outside of the normal web and complex of family relationships, societal location and covenantal structures. The way to enter a relationship with Christ in this model is only by personal volition. And this is because faith must be personally and individually real. Now that last bit is true, of course, but the means of reaching that point, real living faith, in credo-baptist theology, I'm going to suggest is crudely modern and is divorced from how the Bible conceives of the family, and in particular the father. If faith in the God of the covenant is the heart of the covenant relationship, such faith was meant to be passed down through the generations. How does that passing down, that transmission, happen? Just stop for a minute and think how strange our evangelical concept of asking Jesus into my heart as a decisive conversion moment would be in the world of Old Testament covenant relationship. Do we see anything remotely resembling a kind of crisis moment of conversion of children to Yahweh in the Old Testament? We don't. Rather, one of the means for transmission that God uses, along with nurture, enculturation and education, one of the means God uses is the sign and seal of the covenant. So listen to Martin's explanation of what circumcision means in the Old Testament, and you will not hear him say what Paul says in Romans 4 verse 11 that circumcision meant in the Old Testament that circumcision is sign and seal that God gives righteousness to the one who has faith. Land, blessing, dynasty, a male line to Christ, these are the standard explanations of what circumcision signified in credo-baptist theology with, thankfully, an admission that there was also a spiritual meaning to the right. But let me challenge all of us here to read Genesis 17 all the way through and then to tell us that the spiritual meaning is not the primary one. Circumcision is a sign of the everlasting covenant. In Genesis 17 verse 10, God even calls circumcision itself my covenant. And in verse 13, this covenant in the flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Now, I think Credo-Baptist and Peter-Baptist begin to speak past each other at precisely this point because for Peter-Baptists, they feel that Credo-Baptists don't understand circumcision before we ever get to talking about baptism. The meaning of circumcision is the key issue. Let me try and put the Peter-Baptist position. Abraham had faith, sequence, and then was circumcised. It was sign and seal of the righteousness he had by faith. And yet, it is that same sign and seal with the same meaning which he's told to place on his male offspring. His children do not receive a circumcision which meant something different for them than it meant for Abraham. 
It was for him the mark in his flesh of the eternal covenant, which had at its heart the truth that God counts you righteous if you have faith, which he did. It was for his children the mark in their flesh of the eternal covenant, which had at its heart the truth that God counts you righteous if you have faith, which they did not yet. Credo Baptists read and love the same biblical text as Credo Baptists that portray baptism as death and resurrection with Christ and a putting off of the sinful nature and as a sign of putting on Christ to show the new man in faith union to Christ. Believe it or not, Romans 6, Colossians 2, Galatians 3 really, really are in our Bibles. But the reason none of these make us stop baptizing our babies is because we see Abraham giving the sign of spiritual realities, the everlasting covenant no less, to people incapable of cognitively embracing those realities. And here's why we keep doing it. Because he, in doing that, is our father. I baptize my children because I am a Christian father who has Abraham for his father. Now, if you don't baptize your children, here's the spice, if you don't baptize your children but you say you have Abraham for your father, let me say that you don't really think you have him as your father. He's just out there somewhere in the murky depths of the Old Testament and you're kind of connected to him somehow in the biblical ether. But in Christ, he is your covenant father. So do what he did. Walk in his footsteps. Have his faith. And sign and seal your children as belonging to that covenant of faith. Our father Abraham circumcised and Christian fathers baptized because in biblical anthropology, cognition does not have to be the first step towards belonging. Personal understanding is, of course, a necessary step towards embracing the reality of the covenant, but it does not come first. So here's my main point in this section. Not only is the genealogical principle not invalidated in the new covenant, because that covenant is in fact founded on Christ, not just fulfilled in him, so too it is not invalidated because the genealogical principle is Adamic, not just Abrahamic. Maybe better to say, given the pejorative connotations of Adamic, maybe better to say it's creational, not just redemptive. The genealogical principle is simply how God has made the world to work. When you get to Genesis 17, I suggest God leads Abraham by the hand into the covenant home to show him hanging on the wall a portrait of redemption as a renovation of creation spoiled by Adam rather than a new creation ex nihilo. Tom Wright has a lovely observation that the promises to Abraham directly echo the commands to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, only the reverberation of the echo is now gift, not command. Now, it's almost exactly what uh, Philip was saying. I don't know if that's the first time you've ever had you and Tom Wright uh, lined up as identical. Maybe he got it from you. It's what Philip was saying yesterday. The reverberation is gift here, not command. The original divine mandate, seemingly thwarted by the fall into pride, rebellion and sin, not to mention fratricide, barren wounds, patriarchal misbehaviour, will be realised through divine faithfulness. 
Babbent says that the covenant of grace pronounces the deep and beautiful truth that because Adam has been replaced by Christ, the humanity that fell in the person of the first is restored in the person of the second. It is not just individuals who are saved, but the whole structure of an organism that is saved and the structure of the organism that the elect form in Christ is derived from the original creation in Adam. The covenant of grace does not leap from individual to individual, but perpetuates itself organically and historically. In making the covenant with Abraham and his offspring, we must note the recurrence of that phrase all the way through Genesis, and his offspring, and your offspring. God is not in soteriology imposing a new structure there in Genesis 17 on created order. Rather, in soteriology, he's using the created order to achieve his redemptive ends. And the structure is this. Dads dominate. To be a husband, to be a father, is to be a head. And to be a head is to shape the life of those who are joined to you, whether in voluntary union in marriage or adoption, or in their involuntary union to you in paternity. And your little ones do it without one bit of their say-so. What you do as a father forms. What you do as a dad dominates. This is a fact of creation, and it is for egalitarians as much as complementarians. You do not choose to be a head... You are a head. You are one. The only choice you make is what kind of head to be. Doug Wilson says somewhere that this principle even holds when you abdicate your responsibility to the extent of deserting your family and home. For now your instrument of choice for dominating your home is the empty chair at the table. I would argue that evangelical or reformed credo-baptists who wish to remain strong complementarians are inconsistent in the application of the headship principle to all of life. For it's as if we're saying that as we raise our children, there's this one little bit of it that's outside the realm of our influence. Turns out it's quite a big bit, actually, the spiritual bit. But what can you do? The spirit blows where he wills. It's up to God. That is not how God made the world to work. Karl Barth says uh, in his earlier reflections on baptism that are pretty... uh, acerbic in their rejection of infant baptism, he says that infant baptism, by imposing something on a child that the child has not chosen, is arbitrary, despotic, and is an act of violence. Now, it doesn't take long to see the naivety in that, does it, that being a head is an act of violence. It's not simply a role, uh, it's not simply a status you occupy, it is a role you perform. And in countless ways, you are imposing on your children that they did not choose their school. And I'm saying that the same principle holds true spiritually. Now, I'm going to have to skip. um, I think I'm getting close to the end of time, aren't I? How long have I got? I've had 35. Um, Right, let let me try and do this very quickly. Uh, I'll stick stick to what I've got here. Abraham, then, is showing creation federalism working hand-in-hand with redemptive federalism. Now, in a moment, Martin is going to uh, grow and harvest his Baptist hay necessarily and understandably from the language of new covenant promises in Jeremiah, a huge issue of continuity and discontinuity, and I'll try and respond after that. But let me try and say why this construct of redemptive federalism is not 
just a theological construct. Here is a new covenant promise, part of Jeremiah's new covenant oracle, but nearly always overlooked. Jeremiah 32, they will be my people and I will be their God. This is verse 38 to 39. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. That Hebrew phrase there, for good, letov, occurs only once here in the Hebrew, not twice as in most English translations. Neil Jeffers says in a really helpful article on this passage, the good to the people cannot be differentiated from the good to the children. There is one good, new covenant promise to both parents and their children. And Jeffers says he can find only one credo-baptist treatment of this new covenant promise to children, Fred Malone in the Baptism of Disciples Alone, who says that the good that's being referred to here is that it will be good for these children to be raised in a heart-changed home. And I want to say, really? Is that likely to be the deepest meaning of the good that God is offering here? If you look at the next verse in Jeremiah 32, we learn this covenant was made with them as an everlasting covenant. And given the presence of the covenant formula, my people, their God, the repetition of the phrase everlasting covenant, and the repetition of the genealogical principle, them and their children, then surely we're seeing here in the Abrahamic covenant the everlasting covenant being promised in a new administration. And again, as before, to them and to their children. When you get to Acts chapter 2, verse 39 the day of Pentecost, Peter's speech, it cannot be a coincidence, can it, that the threefold categories for circumcision in Genesis 17, Abraham, his seed, foreigners in the house, is matched in verse 39 by threefold categories. The promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off. And I would argue the repetition is because genealogical principle is redemptive and it is creational before it is redemptive. It's how God made the world to work. We see it everywhere in the New Testament. The significant thing about the household baptisms in Acts is not arguing ad infinitum over whether there were infants in the houses or not. Who knows, I guess, is the best we could say. The significant thing is that at this point where the genealogical principle is meant to have been done away with, we see households acting, heads of homes acting and bringing others in with them. Ephesians 6.10, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Can you be in the Lord, but not be in the covenant. So let me finish with this, and I'm going to close here, but more, it's more provocation for you. Michael Horton, in his recent book, Calvin on the Christian Life, suggests that there are at least three models of relating God to the world. There's the medieval and Roman model that blended God and the world. And you see that most visibly, of course, in the sacraments, transubstantiation, and so on. Then you've got the reformed model, which, of course, got the relationship between God and the world right, not least in the sacraments, by arguing that God and the world are distinguished but not separated. But on the other side of those two views grew up the Anabaptist tradition. And if any of you uh, here want to explicitly identify with that tradition, maybe you do or don't, even if you're credo-baptist, you may want to explore and seek to refute Horton's claim that even Anabaptist scholars admit that the movement was indebted to a Greek dualism between spirit and matter. I don't know whether that's true or not. But here's what Horton says. Anabaptism has a theological commitment to discontinuity 
between God and creaturely reality that is also evident in relating spirit and matter, soul and body, church and state, invisible and visible church, God's saving work and the external means of grace. In short, in Anabaptism, and I'm going to argue, have been arguing, it's the same in Credo-Baptism, Horton's words, the bond between God and the world is broken. That cannot be the biblical worldview because in Abraham and his offspring, the covenant founded on Christ and his elect, the bond between God and the world is redeemed, not broken. If the bond is broken in credo-baptist soteriology, does credo-baptism risk being sacramentally docetic? In Martin's Reformed Baptist worldview and in Gentry and Wellam's progressive covenantalism worldview, the bond between God and the world is broken because they make it only spiritual. And I submit in the end that this is a fundamentally unattractive aesthetic it sees less in the world than God intended by radically separating nature and grace. If any of you have read Marilyn Robinson's beautiful novel, Gilead, uh, the elderly and dying, Reverend John Ames is writing down all the things he'll never be able to say to his young son. And you'll know that the novel has some charming cameos on baptism. When John Ames says in a description of infant baptism, that feeling of a baby's brow against the palm of your hand how I have loved this life he is not talking about the ministerial life or church life he's simply talking about life he's talking about the sheer blessing of the genealogical principle physically and spiritually and what it feels like to be a human being in a deep bonded relationship to another human being could a Baptist write a novel like Gilead is a question can the bond between me and my children be only a bond of nature or can the bond between me and my children be a bond of grace as well Abraham and Christ in the covenant of grace says it can be both and not either or thank you Great. Thank you very much, Gary. Thank you, everyone, for bearing with us. Afternoon, slot post lunch, rest and digest, and all that. Um, and let me say thank you, David, as well. Um, I'm so grateful um, for David's always charitable and gracious um, interaction. He genuinely makes me think and teaches me. Uh, he was kind enough to send his paper ahead, um, so we've been able to kind of look at each other's stuff and have a bit of communication as well. So it's, it's great to be able to do this um, with somebody I like. Uh, <laughs> um, there was a debate between uh, an Anglican and a Baptist on uh, the issue of immersion. Like, is baptism full immersion? And the Baptist insisted it was, and the Anglican said that the, the amount of water was really not that important. And the Anglican said, well, what if I then end up to my chest? Would that count as baptism? And the Baptist said, no, that wouldn't count. It's not full immersion. And the Anglican said, well, what if I then end up to my kind of shoulders? Is that, would that count? And the Baptist said, no, that wouldn't count. It's not full immersion. And the Anglican said, what if I went up over my eyebrows, would that count? And the Baptist said, no, that doesn't count, it's not full immersion. And the Anglican said, ah. So it is just that little bit on top of your head that really counts. <laughs> Baptists are a funny bunch. We've, um, we've banned the ice bucket challenge in our church in case any children get accidentally baptised. <laughs> um, we are a curious breed. Um, 
So the debate between the classically Reformed and Reformed Baptists regarding the proper subjects has raised for the last 400 years or so, and while it shows little sign of being resolved this side of the Perusia, headway can be made, I believe, by considering closely uh, the covenant with Abraham. Uh, B.B. Warfield famously once stated, God established his church in the days of Abraham and he put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He's nowhere put them out. They are still on members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances. This, of course, raises questions over terminology. What does it mean to be in the church? Or, for that matter, in the covenant community? And it would be my contention that a proper understanding of the fulfilment trajectory of the Abrahamic covenant leads to a reformed credo-baptist theology. So, first, let's think about uh, the covenant, the signs, and the things signified. Biblical covenants, as you will know, consist of parties, promises, stipulations, and signs. In that respect, the Abrahamic covenant is no different. The parties are God and Abraham, along with his seed and their households. The promise is that God will bless Abraham with land and a dynasty, and through Abraham's offspring, all the nations would one day come to know God's blessing. The stipulation is that Abraham and successive generations ought to walk before God and be blameless. And the sign of the covenant is circumcision, a seal of the promise God made to Abraham. Now that sign serves to signify a number of things, it seems. First, the sign testified to God's promise of land, blessing and a dynasty. Second, the sign reminds the people of the stipulation to walk blamelessly before God. In the progression of salvation history, it served to mark out a physical seed, a nation, and a moral line to Christ. And in addition, the prophetic application of the light, as well as Paul's words in Romans 11, um, as you will hear me say, uh, there is a spiritual meaning to the light, that righteousness comes by faith. Thus, the sign of the covenant contains national, typological, and spiritual realities. As a sign, it's given to all members of the Jewish household, including slaves. Genesis 17:12 reads, For the generations to come, every male among you is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household who bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. It's not just biological children who bear the sign, but any male within the household. We're told in Genesis 14, 14 that Abraham had 318 trained men in his household. This was quite literally a major operation. Ethnicity is not determinative. Slaves brought from foreigners are part of the household, partakers in the covenant God made with Abraham, and are therefore to be circumcised. The genealogical principle encompasses those who are not your offspring. Maybe better to view the Abrahamic covenant as containing a household principle rather than a genealogical principle. So, what becomes of this seed of Abraham? This is where we're going to think about it, the trajectory, and as David said, uh, the fulfilment. What becomes of the seed of Abraham? How does this grand narrative fit into God's grand narrative? Now, the covenant of grace as a theological concept is useful so long as it's remembered that God's covenant with Abraham is a narrative with a trajectory. The tragedy of Israel's history is that despite the repeated prophetic call to circumcise hearts, Deuteronomy 10.6 went unheeded in large-scale fashion. In the 8th century, Isaiah declares God's testament that Israel does not know my people do not understand, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, Isaiah 1, 3 and 4. A couple hundred years later, Jeremiah delivers God's verdict in Jeremiah 9, even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised. 
in heart. In Deuteronomy 36, God promises that post-exile, he will be the one who will perform the necessary circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. The only hope for the children of Abraham is a new heart and a new spirit, nothing short actually of a new creation. The prophecies of Deuteronomy 30, Isaiah 52, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 reveal the problem and the solution. In short, the problem is the people. While some were undoubtedly regenerate, it seems many were not. Their hearts were hard and their necks stiff and they broke the covenant. And the solution according to the prophets is a new covenant. This time unlike the old administration because it will be unbreakable. The fulfilment of God's covenant promised to Abraham will require a law written on minds and hearts, not tablets of stone. Each person, we're told in Jeremiah 31, will know the Lord, from the least to the greatest. Sin will be forgiven and remembered no more. That's the promise of Jeremiah 31. And perhaps the obvious question regarding these promises is, well, what exactly is new? Almost all of these elements were already attested within the Old Testament. For the righteous Old Testament believer, the Lord was in his heart, Psalm 37, 31. People knew the Lord, Psalm 9, verse 10, and also knew forgiveness of sins, Psalm 32. Hence why Booth views the new covenant as the expansion and renewal of the old covenant. They are essentially one covenant, and whilst agreeing with Booth's point on the essential unity of the covenant of grace, there is one significant discontinuity, I think, in Jeremiah's new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34 states, they will all know me, from the least of them, to the greatest. Now, it could be argued that what is meant here is all without distinction. In other words, from the least to the greatest, not just the kings, the prophets, the priests. However, there were members of the Old Covenant who did not hold office yet, were apparently regenerate. Hannah would be a good example of a least person who on the face of things knew her Lord. Interestingly, Samuel, her son, and a covenant member who ministered before the Lord in the tabernacle, apparently did not know the Lord until he was probably an adolescent, we're told in 1 Samuel 3, verse 7. The new thing about the new covenant isn't regeneration. It is that every member of the new covenant, without exception, will know regeneration. Each and every member of the new covenant will personally know the Lord. Who now are the children of Abraham? Paul identifies them as those who have faith, Galatians 3, 7. In Romans 4, Paul identifies Abraham as the father of all who believe. The fulfilment of the Abrahamic covenant removes the dual aspect of the covenant present in the pre-Pentecost era. Doug Wilson summarises nicely the difference between the credo-baptist and the pedo-baptist accounts. He says this, The Baptistic assumption is that the covenants are unlike in this respect. Some old covenant members were regenerate, some were not. All new covenant members are regenerate. The pedo-baptist assumption is that the covenants are alike in this respect. Some old covenant members were regenerate, some were not. Some new covenant members are regenerate, some are not. This nicely captures uh, the distinction, perhaps, between uh, the credo-baptist and the pedo-baptist position. The trajectory of the new covenant points to a wholly regenerate covenant community. The sign of the old covenant anticipates, among other things, the need for a circumcised heart the promise that righteousness comes to those who have faith and the seeds who would open up blessing to the nations. The sign of the new covenant celebrates all of those things as fulfilled realities. What circumcision anticipates, 
baptism celebrates. At this point, uh, let us move to examine one New Testament passage, uh, Galatians 3, to see if this fits with what Paul says about the seed of Abraham. Now, I understand you had a stretching time yesterday evening in typology. Well, we're going to think about it again for a moment. Typology is the study of Old Testament realities, persons, events, institutions, etc., which God has designed to correspond to and prefigure their anti-typical fulfilments in the New Testament. Abraham's seed is the type which finds fulfilment in Isaac, the nation, the Davidic king, and ultimately the Lord Jesus. He is Abraham's seed, the anti-typical fulfilment of the type. This is exactly the argument employed by Paul in Galatians 3. Paul affirms that God gave promises to Abraham's seed and immediately clarifies that the reference of the promise was an individual Christ. Paul must surely know that the promise included the physical descendants of Israel. It's clear from Genesis 12:7 that land is promised to the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 13:16 and 15:5, Abraham is promised that his seed will be as the dust of the earth and the stars of the heavens, naturally referring to more than one man. In Genesis 15:13, the seed will be oppressed for 400 years, a clear reference to the nation in Egypt. In Genesis 17, the covenant is to be between God and Abraham and his seed through the generations. Circumcision is a sign for each male in subsequent generations. Uh, not one individual is the seed. Well, Paul's aware of this. But his explanation in Galatians 3 makes clear that if we can put it like this, there's seed and the seed. Uh, Stephen Wellham identifies four ways in which seed language is used with regard to the Abrahamic covenant. They are the natural seed, including the likes of Ishmael and the foreign slaves in the household. The special, that's the elect line running through Isaac, Jacob and the nation of Israel. The messianic, as we have here in Galatians 3.16. And spiritual, used to refer to believing Jews and Gentiles. There are multiple reference and fulfilment of the promise, with the ultimate anti-typical fulfilment being Christ himself. Infant baptism is often appealed to on the grounds of the continuity of the genealogical principle espoused in Genesis 17. That principle, it is argued, is nowhere in mould and is therefore in perpetuity. However, if Christ is, not just the foundation but the fulfilment in time, space, history of the seed type, then it is legitimate to ask whether a change in the genealogical principle has in fact occurred across covenants. If, historically speaking, all of the promises of Abraham come to a climax in Christ, then we need to consider how do those promises flow out of the other side? Perhaps the question is not so much whether the genealogical principle is still in force, but how it is applied if Christ is the seed. Paul's argument in Galatians 3 is illuminating at just this point. In Galatians 3.14, we learn that the blessing given to Abraham, which presumably in the context is a justification, came to those not in Jewish households through Christ, by faith, and with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 reminds us that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. As Ronald Fenn notes in his Galatians commentary, there's an intimate relationship here between these three ideas, justification by faith, sonship to Abraham by faith, 
and the reception of the Spirit by faith. The forensic and the experiential come together in this relationship of sonship to Abraham through Christ. At the end of Paul's argument, the last verses of Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29, we see again that believers are sons of God through faith in Christ. Paul's polemic has been building to this point. If any person is in any sense a son or daughter of God, it is because they have faith in Christ Jesus. Sonship comes through faith. We're told further that they have clothed themselves with Christ in what? In their baptism. As B.Z. Murray notes, that the concept implied in Christon Adirstar, to put on Christ, can hardly be represented by such renderings as to think oneself into the role of. Now, ethical conditions are not in view. The force of Paul's argument is to assure the Galatian Christians and refute the Judaizers that those who have faith have genuine spiritual union with Christ. Putting on Christ speaks of the spirit-wrought union with Christ. Baptism signifies that incorporation of the subject into union with Christ. Similar language and imagery is also found in Romans 6 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Colossians 2. In Romans 6, 3 and 4, baptism is a death and a resurrection. And Colossians 2, 11 has a putting off of the sinful nature and the death resurrection motif of Romans 6. 1 Corinthians 12 says, We were baptised into one body and given one spirit to drink. Now if you put these texts together, we get a picture of what it means to be baptised into Christ. It means a putting off of the old man, Colossians 2.11, and a putting on of Christ, Galatians 3.27. It means death and resurrection, new creation. Romans 6, 3 and 4, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And it means to drink of the Holy Spirit. These things bring us into that living faith union with Christ by baptism, which also unites us to Abraham as his children. These things are nothing less than the full privileges of the new birth in salvation. Doug Moo, in his recent commentary, Galatians notes that union with Christ is a central building block in Paul's theology. It is by believing in Christ that one is joined with him and thus receives all the benefits of that union. Stephen Wellham states, The New Testament knows nothing of one who is in Christ who is not regenerate, effectually called of the Father, born of the Spirit, justified, holy and awaiting glorification. Indeed, in verse 29, we're told that those who belong to Christ are Abraham's seed and as such heirs according to the promise. The seed of the seed of Abraham will not fail to inherit the full eternal riches of salvation. Therefore, anyone who is now in Christ is like Christ, one of Abraham's seed. This is the conclusion of Paul's argument in the section. And his relationship with Christ, which relates Gentile Christians directly to Abraham and God's covenantal promise. The seed is born of Christ, but by spirit and water, not by physical conception and birth. Paul's point in context is that Abrahamic sonship is by virtue of Christ's sonship. Ronald Thun again summarises nicely. Believers are collectively the true seed of Abraham since... By virtue of their faith union with Christ, they are one person in him who is the true issue of Abraham. 
Justification by faith, reception of the Spirit by faith, becoming sons of God by faith are intimately linked together as different expressions for the fulfilment of the promise. The sum of the argument of Galatians 3 can be outlined as follows. Who are the children of Abraham? Those who are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Union with Christ consists of saving faith, justification and spirit reception signed and sealed in baptism. Such a relationship is a work of the Spirit and that work affects justification. Here's the, here's the, the Baptist say, uh, there are no non-justified, unregenerate children in the New Covenant. There's nobody in the New Covenant who is not justified and regenerate. The pedo-Baptist appeal to the dual aspect of the covenant, while clearly present in the old, is absolutely alien to the new. The difference, I think, between David's position and mine lies here. David, I think, uh, would affirm the dual aspect of the covenant across covenants, whereas I would argue that in the new covenant there is no dual aspect any longer. Uh, The fulfilment means that. They will all know me. For David, I think, that will necessarily include household members, uh, whether they're regenerate as yet or otherwise. For myself, my understanding of New Covenant realities outlined above in the promises of the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, and Galatians 3 and elsewhere, means that the sign must only be for the household of faith. Now I too had a third um, point, but I'm aware we won't have time um, for responses, so I'm going to stop there um, and let David respond. Thanks very much, Martin, and to all of you for your uh, ongoing patience. Likewise, I want to thank you very much, um, Martin, for your paper and uh, such a clear um, presentation of the Credo Baptist position. That I think the main... I'm, I'm only going to speak from notes. This is going to be brief. Um, I think the main thing that I would want to say in response to that kind of presentation is that I think it shows how close you are to becoming a pedo-baptist. Now, so the the great strength of your paper is also its Achilles heel from a Baptist perspective, which is once Baptist and pedo-baptist move beyond trading texts, uh, you know, the Baptist... uh, uh, The church I grew up in, we had a little leaflet that we kept at the back, what the Bible says about infant baptism, and you open it up and it was blank inside and um, we, we gave that to nobody because we never had Peter Baptist come to church but we felt really good that we had this at the back um, once you move beyond that trading of text and, you know, when the Baptist no longer says well I can't show me a text that says where a baby's baptised you've moved once you stop doing that you've actually moved onto Peter Baptist territory I think which is you're arguing about covenant and you're arguing about paradigms um, that is obviously a concession I'm assuming you want to make, which is really good. I think it then means that a real genuine conversation begins, which is hopefully what's happening here. So I would want to say when, when we look really closely at what covenant is and what the promises of the new covenant are, that I don't think it's a great step to then end up in the Peter Baptist position. So, yes, there's Jeremiah 31. 
they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And your argument is that the all is uh, all without exception or all without distinction. <coughs> it, uh, my counter response would be, if we take the word all and we're trying to, you've got the, let's say we've got the two options, all without exception, all without distinction, and we're thinking how are we going to decide between those two, the text itself straight after supplies and all without distinction phrase so they will all know me from the least to the greatest um, it's very hard to understand that that could be taken in a all without exception sense when the text itself gives you uh, the opposite when you then keep digging into that the least to the greatest uh, there's an article by Jeffrey Neal in the book that Greg Strawbridge edited the case for covenantal infant baptism arguing about what is new in the new covenant and Neil's argument is that because Jeremiah 31 is very definitely talking about the Mosaic covenant, not the covenant with Abraham, it will not be like the covenant I made when I led them by the hand from Egypt. Because he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, when you get to that language in verse, uh, whatever it is in 31, about all know me from least to greatest, the context is actually to do with the priesthood within Israel, knowing the Lord, and teaching, a man teaching his brother or neighbour was the job of the Levitical priesthood. Straight after that verse you have, they will all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will remember their sins no more, I will forgive their iniquities. It's no accident that Hebrews is using a text like that to argue for the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Um, it's not we've got to move beyond simply saying that Hebrews is quoting it. Why is Hebrews using a text that doesn't, at first reading, seem to be anything to do with priesthood? It's because it is actually all to do with priesthood. Um, so I think there are really good pedo-baptist understandings of the Jeremiah 31 New Covenant uh, language. Coupled with that, I only gave you one example of the continuation of what I see as the physical seed, principle Jeremiah 32, but um, there's also Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 65. You have Psalm 103, his mercy from generation to generation, quoted uh, by Mary in the Magnificat. Uh, if you take a text like Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, uh, which is a promise about the return from exile in, in Deuteronomy, I will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants which I presume is an early version of the New Covenant promises, but following the return from exile, I will circumcise the hearts of your descendants. It cannot be spiritual descendants that are being talked about, otherwise it's a tautology. To have a circumcised heart is to be a, a spiritual descendant. So um, to me, the genealogical principle is not just inferred from the Adamic creational principle, but it's actually explicit in plenty of New Covenant texts. So once credo-baptists get onto the territory of arguing from covenant and not simply stating texts, I think the next challenge for the credo-baptist position is to engage with the text that actually explicitly say the genealogical principle continues. Um, the quote that you have from Stephen Wellam about in the New, the, the New Testament knows nothing of... Uh, let me find it. Stephen Wellams states, The New Testament knows nothing of one who is in Christ, who is not regenerate, effectually called of the Father, born of the Spirit, justified holy, and awaiting glorification. To me, that is just a patently false statement. John 15, Every branch in me, enemoi, that does not bear fruit, uh, will be cut off. 
So to say the New Testament knows nothing of knowing who is in Christ, who is not regenerate, I simply can't see how it's true. There's, John 15 is not saying people close to me or who had some association with me, but what does it mean to actually be in Christ, but eventually cut out? If the New Covenant has no dual aspect, Jesus' formation of the New Israel with 12 disciples, is that mixed or pure? It's not pure church, is it? It's mixed with Judas included. Um, to the saints, saints in Corinth, holy in Christ, and yet one of you is sleeping with your father's wife and your pride, but all addressed as saints. Hebrews 10:29. It will be worse for people like this. They're punished for profaning the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. I struggle to see how the dual aspect is not being perpetuated and continuing um, through the new covenant. So there's some brief thoughts and reflections. Yes, thank you very much, David. Um, I did have thanks that I will respond to David's paper, not to David's criticisms of, of me, although there's um, lots of things I would like to say. Um, yeah, stuff to do with the way language works, speech act theory, phenomenological faith, um, hermeneutics, covenant apostasy, are all things that you can chase up. Um, there are things that, yeah, again, like you said earlier, those, those passages are in our bowels too, and um, there are things to say. Um, and as you say, you know, um, what I meant to say is, is, is a, a precursor to this is sola scriptura means that God rules me by his word and um, my, my kind of, whatever your confessional basis is, 1689 Westminster Confession, that is not my ultimate authority, the Bible is. Um, so I have to be prepared to, you know, fall down the Peter back to stairs, um, as, as you said once. Um, and I have to be prepared to say I might be wrong. Uh, I know that historically, globally, uh, my position is a minority position, and I have to be aware of that too. So I think Baptists have to have um, great humility on this. Um, indeed. Okay, so what, what would I say to um, David's paper? Uh, I liked lots of this. It was very helpful indeed. I loved the, the Pactum Salutis um, seed stuff. Um, perhaps I might just... Ask, you know, at one point you, you said, you know, it's possible to be a child of Abraham, a child of the devil, and, and I say, no, Kevin, I, I agree, that's true. But your conclusion to that section said, who is a child of Abraham? Abraham and Paul both return the same answer. Ultimately, the answer is the same. A child of Abraham is one of us, the faith of Abraham, in the God of his righteousness to those who believe a child of Abraham is one of us, faith in Christ and belongs to Christ. And I want to say, um, I meant that, but also, um, it's clear in Elkin, isn't it, that there are people who you could genuinely call child of Abraham who were not, did not have faith. Um, what does Lazarus say from hell? Father Abraham. He's a child of Abraham uh, who does not have faith. So I, I think, um, I'll say, yeah, that's, that's clearly there, isn't it, in the old covenant, in a way which I think it's not in the new. Um, what about the second? The second section, nature, grace, and federalism. Again, I liked a lot of it. Um, perhaps some quibbles. Um, so at one point, challenge you uh, to read Genesis 17 all the way through and tell me that spiritual meaning is not the primary one. Um, I agree that spiritual meaning is there. I, I did a Bible work search of Abraham, and I think I'd say, go through the Pentateuch and tell me that land isn't the primary 
issue with the Abrahamic covenant. It's just, it's the overwhelming thing. I'm happy to say the scriptures there, but I can't get away from uh, the reading of all the texts. If you do the search, you'll see the Abrahamic covenant is, is as much about land uh, as it is uh, spiritual things. Um, Jeremiah 32, um, those, those kind of covenant formula, including children. Um, again, I'd say um, yes, and there's also promises there about restoring the city and restoring uh, the land. Uh, there's agrarian language there, which you find in actually all the prophecies of restoration. Um, but I'm not a dispensationalist. I don't think there's uh, a promise for the land. I think that's a, a type type which is fulfilled in Christ and the church and the new creation. The same thing I think goes on with seed. Um, Acts 2.39 um, is interesting. Um, what's the promise? Uh, Acts 2.39 it's for you and for your children and for all those far off. Uh, and the far off David Peterson argues in his commentary that the descriptive passing towards Ace Macron refers to those far off geographically and not just generationally. Uh, and what is the promise of Acts 2.39? Actually, go back one verse. It's repent and be baptized and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. Yeah, of course, that's for you and your children. Repent and believe. Um, you'll receive it. Um, household baptisms. To which I, I suppose I want to say, and, and again, this, this is a question. I'm, I might understand this. I probably don't understand this. So I just, I offer this out. But one of the things I struggle to get, get my head around is the move that seems to happen in pedo-baptist practice as I see it from households to believers and their biological children it seems in the old kind of the sign is given to everyone in the household in a way in which I don't see practiced I don't see foster kids getting it I'm not sure what you do with a living nanny um, a federal head doesn't force his unbelieving wife to be baptised in Presbyterian churches as far as I know what, what would you do with, it, with a grandfather who's a Christian, he came into house. Who's then the head? Is it, is it, does dad make granddad get baptised or vice versa? Um, and and this, this nature grace thing is, is interesting. Um, it's a little bit of conversational terrorism. You know, you might as well just brand with us with the Nazis as well and then none of us will want it. Um, I think we're all credo-baptists really. <laughs> I do and, and here's why here's why the, the federal headship thing I just can't see um, if I turned up to Doug Wilson's church and I said Doug my granddaddy baptised my daddy and my daddy baptised me we baptised my kids I don't think he'd say yes I don't think he'd say yes of course because we work in federal categories he'd say tell me a bit about your faith is they tell me a bit about your heart experience of the Lord Jesus. Let me see if you're a genuine Christian, because I don't think Peter Baptist are actually advocating. Um, I, I think it seems to me Peter Baptist wants uh, that real individual, modern uh, faith to be present in dads. And if it's not there, I don't think about times the kids. So in that sense, I, I'm just not sure those categories go. Um, quite that neatly and, and, and all the nature grace stuff I, I think I'd hope I'd want to deny that and I might be grossly inconsistent in so doing um, but I just want to say of course um, let, let, me find, let me find the, the, the line uh, to get this right can the, yeah, the last line can the bond be, between my children be only the bond of nature or can it be the bond of grace as well I said of course it's the bond of grace but what sort of grace do we think it's an automatic special grace? I don't think anyone wants to argue that. So what sort of grace are we? I think we're probably talking about the, the apex and the pinnacle of common grace. 
Now, of course there's blessings. Of course I can influence my children, but I can't make them Christians. That is a job of the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, I'm just, yeah, three o'clock. I'm going to shut up. Um, guys, give me the most, so.